The following message is from the Church at Greer Station. For more information, visit tcgreerstation.com. Now, one of the things that I've realized that I can always do in a sermon is give some kind of hot take, and I'm always going to get feedback. Maybe not necessarily good feedback, probably negative feedback, but if I give a hot take, I have found that the people of TCGS typically respond to my hot takes. All right, a couple of weeks ago, I was talking about turkey, about turkey is the, the most overrated of all the meats. And <laughs> people were cornering me after service to like make a case for turkey. All right, I got another hot take for us tonight, and it's kind of inspired by this girl that I dated in college. Well, one thing I remember about this relationship I had with this girl was that her family loved CSI. You know that show? CSI, Crime Scene Investigators. It's the forensic investigation show. It's like you have the, the guys who go to the crime scene and they evaluate all the evidence and then they, before the commercial break, remove the sunglasses and say some kind of pun, like they were dying to get out of this situation or something awful like that. CSI. You got CSI Las Vegas. You got CSI Miami. You got CSI New Brunswick, whatever else. You have all the different flavors of CSI. And it was funny, I was telling Emily about this, and I was asking her permission to talk about a girl I used to date. And she was like, man, everybody in the early 2000s was about CSI. What household didn't love CSI back in the day? And I kid you not, five minutes later, I'm watching football with my boys, and a CSI commercial comes on, and that same guy is still playing that same character. And it's been like 67 years or whatever. Now, people eat this stuff up. And like I said, it is not for me. But since TV has been a thing, we are obsessed with crime stories. We are obsessed with courtroom and police dramas and crime scene investigations and savvy detectives. We are obsessed with this stuff. Maybe it's some kind of justice thing that we have. Like we've been created in God's image, and so we crave justice. At the end of the day, it's satisfying to see the guilty found out. We want to see closure. We want to see the good guys pulling off their glasses and being exactly right about who the villains are. To see something where the good guys win and the guilty are given their due. Maybe it speaks to something like that in our hearts, which is why we love it. Or maybe, maybe the reason that we love it is because we know that it's not actually always the case in reality that the good guys make it out unscathed and the bad guys are found out. Because we know that the guilty often go unpunished and also, oftentimes, the innocent are condemned. It's a, it's a profoundly disturbing and just unsettling reality to human existence that at the end of the day, at least under the sun, justice is not always meted out at the end of the day. Now, one of the wonders, we might say, of the Christian story is that the heart of our faith and what Christianity teaches is, is the heart of human history is the account of the Christian God himself embracing unjust condemnation at the hands of the unjust kangaroo court in the middle of the night with a predetermined verdict in search of evidence. But what's so great about this scene, again, the scene that Mike just read, the beautiful irony is that the one we thought was the defendant is actually the judge. Let's read again. Matthew 26, starting in verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following Jesus at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. 
Now, up to this point in chapter 21, Jesus has entered into Jerusalem, what we call a series called Clash of the Kingdoms, where Jesus is very clearly entering into the city of Jerusalem as its king. He enters into the temple and he starts flipping tables. And he's allowed to do that because he, he runs and owns the place. He calls down judgment on the religious practices of the religious leaders of Israel. Then he eats a final meal with his disciples. He prays in the garden and he's betrayed by one of his own, Judas. Jesus says at the beginning of chapter six, uh, chapter 26, rather, that he's going to be delivered up. And something like a dozen times in these chapters, it says Jesus is delivered up. He's delivered up. He's delivered up. But Jesus is no passive agent in these affairs. We're intended to see that Jesus is the one who has undertaken this cause very much on purpose. Jesus says in the, the last section that we saw, this had to happen in order that the scriptures must be fulfilled. And so what we have here is after Jesus is betrayed by Judas and he's taken out of the garden, he's apprehended during the night as he's brought before what's essentially the supreme court of the people of Israel. It's really important to note here that this story takes place at the end of chapter 26 after the religious leaders have already decided that they're going to put Jesus to death. It's important to note because they apparently, they want to follow the letter of the law. They, they, they want to appear like they're doing things right, but their verdict has already been established. Chapter 26, verses 3 and 4, it says, we got to snuff this guy out. This Jesus, he, he, we're at the end of our rope with this guy. we got to find a way to snuff him out. The Supreme Court of Israel was essentially permitted to take place under Roman rule. Uh, Rome allowed the Jews to keep some semblance of governing authorities in place, unlike they did with other people groups after they were conquered. They permitted a, a certain degree of autonomy, which was basically to placate the people. It was basically to prevent there being some kind of uprising. So they had these sort of pseudo-courts that were in place. So Jesus is brought before this court. They're seeking false testimony against him, and it says that they're looking for absolutely anything they can to stick Jesus with. Look again at verse 60, uh, verse 59 rather. The chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. It's like, all right, anybody got any claims that we can, we can make against Jesus that we can justify his death sentence with? Verse 60, it says they found none. They found none. There, there was no, none of these accusations had any kind of sticking power with Jesus. Though many false witnesses came forward, none of the stuff that they said stuck. We're also told in this passage that Peter's kind of hanging back. It's interesting, it says that Peter was following at a distance because he wanted to see the end. He thought this was it for Jesus and his little movement of disciples. He wanted to see the end. But something else worth noting is that a couple of decades after this, Peter, after he sees the resurrected Christ and he's met with the resurrected Jesus and filled with Jesus' spirit, ends up becoming one of the pillars of the church and, and writes a letter to a group of suffering Christians, which we call 1 Peter. And in 1 Peter, he talks about what it means to suffer unjustly. And he talks about how we're to pattern ourselves after Jesus, to be like Christ, who, though he was falsely accused, his actions didn't give anybody any sort of legitimate grounds for criticism. It's kind of amazing to think about when you read 1 Peter, that Peter's talking about these things from from firsthand experience. Jesus saw these things taking place. Jesus saw, uh, Peter rather, saw Jesus, the unjust sufferer. When he says to us in 1 Peter 2.12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and rather glorify God on the day of visitation. You wonder if he has these events in mind as he's writing this letter. Verse 60 Chapter 26 also tells us that the last two came forward. So you have two more folks, kind of the, the last-ditch effort 
they come forward. In verse 61, they say, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. All right, so by law, two or three witnesses are required to convict someone. It says that they tried to do so unsuccessfully, then many came forward, and then finally, two guys come forward with something that sticks. They accuse Jesus of promising to destroy their sacred temple. Now, we talked about this several months ago when we were looking at uh, Matthew chapter 21. Over and over again, you see in Israel's history that the temple kind of becomes this talisman for the people of Israel. It's like, we've been given the temple, therefore, we're totally immune to any sort of discipline or judgment from God. He gave us the temple. We can do whatever we want. As long as the temple's still standing, we're good. We've got the temple, we're off the hook. It kind of became this almost magical rabbit's foot that they had in their possession. One of the things Jesus condemned was that very tendency. And so when Jesus comes around and he condemns their temple and he flips over tables in the temple, he starts messing with the rabbit's foot, it agitates people. And they say, this guy said he was going to destroy the temple. Verse 62. The high priest stood up and he said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? Verse 63. But Jesus remained silent. Now the high priest is probably incensed by this. The temple is sacred, and any guy who says he destroyed a temple is like a terrorist-level threat. He's, he's livid. Now, Jesus doesn't say this explicitly in Matthew. He does in John. He says that he is going to destroy the temple in John. But again, a few chapters prior, Jesus makes no bones about the ultimate destination of the temple. It's going to be ground to dust. And just this generation, we're going to see the temple overturned. He publicly condemns the temple and prophesies about its destruction. And so the high priest is incensed. He's he's livid. Have you no answer? Verse 63, Jesus remains silent. The high priest, seething again. The high priest says to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Again, he says, I adjure you in God's name, answer me, he says to Jesus. Now the word adjure here, maybe it's not super familiar to us, but it essentially means to force an oath. Swear to me by God's name, he says, taking the Lord's name in vain. Can't overlook the irony here. The high priest invoking God's name in vain to God himself, outraged. And God's name, tell me if you're the Christ. It's clear the contempt the high priest has for Jesus. One commentator pointed out that he's he's probably saying, you know, you're a prisoner. You're in chains. Tell us, in God's name, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? Are you the one who came to redeem Israel, though you stand before us in chains, pathetic? Verse 64, Jesus responds, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus says, you have spoken rightly about me. You said it, not me. I am the Christ, the son of the living God. I did indeed condemn the temple. I am the anointed Messiah. And here's what else Jesus says. Jesus says, you know in your scriptures, the prophet Daniel, you remember in Daniel chapter seven when Daniel receives a vision? When Daniel says in verse 13, I saw in the night vision, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him And to him, to the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom 
that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not, cannot, will not, won't be destroyed. Jesus says, you remember that? Remember that scripture? A man appointed by God himself and given authority and glory, seated as the ruler of all of the universe at God's right hand, riding the clouds of heavens like a chariot. You remember that? Jesus says, that's me. And you will see that that's me soon enough. How does the high priest respond in verse 65? The high priest tears his robe. He's so agitated by what Jesus says to him in reply. He says that he tears his robe, which interestingly is specifically outlawed in Leviticus chapter 21. You shall not tear your robes. He tears his robe and he says, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. More irony, the high priest behaving unlawfully, accusing Jesus of blasphemy after invoking God's name to God himself. He says to the council, verse 66, what is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. Some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? They condemned Jesus to death. They spit, strike, slap, and mock Jesus. But the irony of all of this, the verdict that they arrive at, the accusation that they make of Jesus, is true. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of Man given a kingdom. And though they pronounce death and condemnation over Jesus, the reality of who and what they are is unveiled and revealed for us to see. Though Jesus is on trial, they're the ones who stand condemned. Verse 69, it spins back and tells us what's been happening with Peter. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came up to Peter and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. So somebody sees Peter in the crowd. You know, remember it's, it's nighttime, uh, you know, sights obscured a bit. Somebody notices Peter. Wait a second, you're with Jesus. You're one of his followers. Verse 70, but he denied it before them all saying, I do not know what you mean. Like, no comprende. And when he went out to the entrance, another girl, servant girl saw him. So he tries to make his way out. Another servant girl sees him. And she said to the bystanders, wait a second, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, Peter denies it with an oath. I do not know the man. Verse 73, and after a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. You talk like you're from the region of the guys who are following Jesus. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. What takes place here is in direct fulfillment to what Jesus said would happen and what Peter swore wouldn't happen just verses prior to this. So the place we find ourselves in the narrative is that Jesus has been apprehended. He's been seized. There's been this kangaroo court in the middle of the night. A verdict has been arrived at. We're, we're going to put Jesus to death because he claims to be the Messiah the son of man, the one who has received the kingdom, and his disciples are sent scattering. Just as Jesus said, the shepherd will be struck and the sheep will scatter. But what's so brilliant about this passage to me is that though Jesus is on trial, Jesus isn't on trial. I mean, there's, a, there's a very obvious sense on the surface that Jesus is, is on trial. The kangaroo court grasping at straws, desperate for evidence, and they get it. 
from the lips of Jesus himself. This is who I am. And as a result, they condemn them, condemn him to death. The supreme ruler and judge over all things, the son of man, given all things by the ancient of days. The irony of this passage is Jesus is not the one on trial. They are. The evidence of their evil, their plotting, their blasphemy, their betrayal of God himself is on full display. By their actions in response to Jesus, they condemn themselves. He flips their tables, he calls out their moral arrogance, their corrupt worship, their unjust treatment of others, and he does so as the son of man, the king, the ruler, the judge over all humanity. He's not the guilty party, they are. And the thing that sort of stuck out, stuck out to me, the, this, the kind of tendency of, of my own heart and soul that I saw in this passage that's on display by this court of sort of self-appointed people of importance is we have a tendency to do the exact same thing. To put Jesus on trial and therefore expose the truth about ourselves. Here's what I mean. I read recently about a young man who was, who was talking about how he was ultimately converted to Christianity. He came to faith during his college years, and he said it happened during a, a, a preaching through the book of Joshua. He said that the church that his friends had invited him to participate in was, was walking through the book of Joshua. And it was one Sunday after the preacher read a particularly challenging passage about an account of God commanding the Israelites to utterly wipe out the Canaanites. He said he recalled the, the preacher read the passage and he looked up and said, what do you think about this? The, the young man said, I was sort of wondering to myself, what is the preacher going to say about this passage? How is he, he going to make sense of this really challenging scripture? But he said what happened next so shifted his paradigm that it resulted in him coming to faith. He said that the preacher went on to say, it doesn't matter what you think about this because God doesn't owe us explanations. God is not on trial. We are, because God is God, and we aren't. There's another author who was writing in the early 20th century about the challenges of evangelism during his time. He said one of the, one of the things that he noted was the, the chief differences between pre-modern people and us, modern folks, is that pre-modern people understood by virtue of, of being here, by virtue of having been made, they were subject to a divine being who was outside of them. There's some awareness of being accountable to this being and some obligation to conform their lives to this being's demands and to not do so, to not live in accordance with this God's design for their life was sin. It's wrong. It's evil. But it goes on to say that our tendency, you and I, modern day people, we have completely turned the table. We're not the ones whose lives are subjected to our creator. No, we think he is subject to us. We have infinitely customizable, customizable lives where everything is a choice, where everything is perfectly tailored to our needs. We're a people who live frictionless, tech-driven lives where there are few wants we have to say no to. Like really, when was the last time you had something you wanted that you could not get within the next week? We have few desires that can't be met almost instantly. We picture ourselves as having unusual moral clarity and knowing exactly how God ought to be. And so we're only willing to choose a God who affirms us as we are and who, who can only cleanly map onto the stuff that we're already up to, the stuff that we're already interested in, and the stuff that we're already investing ourselves in. If God can give us good reasons for the things he says and does, for the things he allows, then maybe we'll let him off the hook. 
Unless God is perfectly customizable and perfectly meets my framework for who he ought to be, he can't exist. In fact, I don't want him to exist. For I know the plans I have for you, we declare to the Lord. So we put God on trial. And this says more about us than it does about him. If you're familiar with uh, some figures of the New Atheist Movement, figures like Richard Dawkins and the like, one of the things that they talk about often is that God is on trial. They explicitly say God is on trial and we find him wanting. The God of the Bible, the God of Christianity, we put him on trial, we evaluated the evidence, and we say, no thanks, no bueno, not for me. He can't exist, and if he does exist, he's laughably outdated and morally inferior to us. But friends, God stands beyond us, outside of us, making demands of us. It cannot be the other way around. The tremendous irony of this passage into, the, into our lives is we set ourselves up as the ones who pronounce judgment over God and his son Jesus. We gather evidence to render a verdict, but we are not the ones on trial. We stand before him. He makes demands of us. We adjure him nothing. Think about this. The son can give you cancer from 93 million miles away, right? And we think we can just demand its creator to fit our deal. To just be about the stuff that I'm already about. Now, don't get me wrong. I mean, one of the things, I mean, I've had many conversations with people in the body about this very thing. What I'm, what I'm not saying is that we shouldn't wrestle with the Bible, you know, I mentioned the difficult passages like Joshua. I'm not saying we shouldn't wrestle with those things. We should. We must do the hard work of working through passages and understanding why these scriptures are in our Bibles. I'm not saying there aren't good answers to these things. That we, that, I'm not saying that we shouldn't engage our full selves, including our minds, when it comes to the scriptures. But what I am saying is that you and I need to understand that Jesus demands us follow him to give our lives to him, to take our crosses and die. We make no demands on Jesus. And so here's some questions for us. First, am I okay with God as he is? Or do I say things like, I could never believe in a God who, fill in the blank. I could never believe in a God who commands us to love enemies. I can never believe in a God who, who meets out divine justice to sinners. I can never believe in a God who sends a son to die for sins because that seems old-fashioned and brutal. I can never believe in a God who creates men and women differently and calls them to live in complementarity with one another. I can never believe in a God who fill in the blank. If we find ourselves there, that could demonstrate something about ourselves more than it does about him. What is my reaction when I read hard parts of the Bible? Is it, this is distasteful, I don't want any interest in this, I'll speed past it and go read the more comforting portions of scripture? Or do we see it as saying something true about who God and who Jesus is and making demands on us? Am I willing to conform my heart, my desire, my picture of God with the hard edges of who the Bible says he is? Or do I demand him to be what I wish him to be? By extension, how do I respond to brothers and sisters who challenge me from scripture? Am I receptive to that, or do I instantly push back? Jesus is not the one on trial. We demand nothing of Christ. 
But at the end of the day, isn't this what we want? A Jesus who is supreme. A son of man who stands above and beyond my preferences and my wants and my paltry attempts at making my own life and making my own meaning. Get around the block enough, you're like, I just want something to sink my teeth into. Something that just calls me outside of myself, calls me to a life that's above and beyond anything that I could just dream up for myself. The glory of the God of the Bible is that he stands silently as he's condemned by wicked men. He embraces death and willingly takes on unjust condemnation for us. You talk about who, who does the scriptures reveal God to be? It's this, the murdered Christ. who takes on God's wrath and takes on an unjust suffering for us. He then calls us to himself so that he can flip over our tables and overturn our priorities and call us to court to interrupt our lives and says to us, you follow me, you get with my deal and my program. Is this not, at the end of the day, the best news? That I'm not on the hook for making my own life. I am not on the hook for making my own meaning. I am, I am not on the hook for figuring this stuff out by myself, but Jesus comes to us and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Abandon everything else and come after me, and there you'll find life. Jesus' life is a demand, I've heard it said. To every soul in this room, May we repent and turn from our ways of living, thinking, and behaving. And may we give our body and our souls over to Jesus, trusting that his ways are better than anything I could come up with. Tonight we have the opportunity to take the Lord's Supper. This is something that we do uh, about once a month. And in the Lord's Supper, we receive bread and we receive juice. The Lord's Supper comes directly from the mouth of Jesus. And all four Gospels were given some sort of teaching on the Lord's Supper, where Jesus says, I'm giving this meal to my people as a reminder of what I've done for them. He says that the body represents his, uh, the, the bread rather represents his body broken for us. The blood represents his, his blood shed for us. And so whenever we take the Lord's Supper, we're reminded of Jesus standing before the kangaroo court in the middle of the night, silently being accused, receiving condemnation that he did not deserve for you and I. But also, as we take the Lord's Supper, we also remember that Jesus is the supreme ruler of everything and he's going to, come to, going to come back and he's going to fix everything and he's going to right all wrongs. And these elements are the hors d'oeuvres of the feast that is to come on that day. And so though we take it with heavy hearts, remembering the sin that made Christ's death necessary, we take it with a sort of joy that we can't even quite put into words because it reminds us that there is a feast coming because Jesus is the son of man who has been given a kingdom. Now, in the next few minutes, I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to give us space to just sort of sit and reflect, to reflect on some of the things that have been said and reflect on who the Scriptures reveal Jesus to be. Then after we have some time to reflect and search our hearts, as Paul instructs us in Corinthians 11, I'll come up and invite us to take the elements. Now, as you come forward, you'll take the elements, and you'll take them back to your seats, and then we will uh, we'll take them all together. So, again, I'll give you some space to pray. And then I'll come back up and say a few words and invite you to the table where you'll come back and sit in your seat and then we'll take from our seats. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, we, we come to you as Lord. I come to you as Lord. And I come to you as one who is in need of your grace. I, came to, I come to you as, as one who gets moody when he doesn't get his way. And when things don't work out the way he thinks that they ought. And so I come, Lord Jesus, asking for a greater willingness by your Holy Spirit for my life to conform to to what you have for me, for my life to conform to the life of Christ. And may I come to you with a kind of of humility and childlike obedience where I just come and and I open myself up completely to you. I pray for our church family that we would be a group of people who see the God of the Bible and the, the Jesus of the Scriptures for all that he is, and that we would, we would open ourselves up, each of us, to you, Holy Spirit, Lord Jesus, Father in heaven. Work in us, mold us, and change us, and renew us, conform us to who you are. Give us a, a deep and abiding joy that comes from knowing that we, we are we are held and we are loved and we are sustained by a good God and a faithful Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that my eternity hangs on your goodness and grace. I pray also that we would be people who don't think, as we think about some of these challenges tonight, we wouldn't be people who think first about all of the, the sinners out there. But we look inward and see how you are calling us to conform ourselves more and more to you as you are. As we take the supper, Lord Jesus, we pray that our hearts would be restored, that our faith would be renewed, and that our bond and our love for each other would be strengthened. Pray this in Christ's name.